Amen. It's good to sing together, isn't it? Thank you, Wayne, so much, and musicians. Let's bow before the Lord, shall we? Father, what a wonderful thing we've been singing about, our security in Christ and how we are at one. Thank you for the great finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And, and even as we study this concept further today, would you please visit us, challenge us with your word, let the Holy Spirit uh, be free to work here and help us to embrace that and, and through uh, obedient lives and humble hearts. I pray that we would just um, receive with joy the teaching of your word. And, and Lord, it's difficult for us sometimes and we need your help in understanding your word and that we would know at a greater level who you are and what your expectations are and what a great salvation we have in Christ. And we commit this time now of our worship of sitting still before the preaching of the word to you and to our good in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want you to go with me in your minds to a very special place. There was never anything like it ever before. You are quite familiar with it as a concept. The Bible gives us some specific detail, just enough to know exactly what happened. I'm talking about the Garden of Eden and Adam there, even before Eve was created from his side and our Lord completed him with his female companion, his wife Eve. There he was naming the animals in this incredible new creation. Everything was exactly the way God designed it. Nothing was flawed by sin. There Adam is naming the animals and God had a couple of reasons for doing that. One, not the least of which, was for Adam to recognize his own incompleteness without a female. Male and female created he them. God puts him to sleep and, okay, here we go. Can you really imagine the moment that Adam woke up and saw Eve? In all of their pristine innocence, and the stellar beauty of God's creation, unspoiled by anything outside of the will of God. And in their naive, pure innocence, nakedness was right. And there they were in this utopian beauty beyond our imagination, really. And, and add to that that the Bible definitely lets us know that it was evidently God's normal practice to come even in the cool of the evening and to walk with them and to fellowship in the garden. That is so enviable. There was no sin. There was no negative thought. There was nothing that was stained. And they had fellowship together in perfect purity with their heavenly father. And then one day the wheels fall off. Eve, evidently in some level of naivety. Adam, certainly in negligence of his male headship and protecting his wife. Uh, she becomes vulnerable to the evil one. She eats of the forbidden fruit. And now another moment. The moment that they immediately received a conscience and became aware with the loss of innocence of their own nakedness as though somebody barges in upon you at Walmart in a stall and you yell at the top of your voice, I'm in here. And they go from perfect innocence to incredible sensitivity to their own fallenness and they run to the bushes and hide. And then God comes again. And God comes and even in his omniscience to drive home his point to Adam, he cries out, Adam, where are you? Adam, where are you? And there they are hiding in their nakedness, in their vulnerability, their conscience is afflicted. 
because they have sinned. Okay, now the moment that I really wanted us to get to. So it's in chapter 3 of Genesis, verse 20. As I said, we have just enough detail to know exactly what happened, but we don't know how it happened. We know what happened. We don't know how it happened. It says in 3.20 that the Lord God took skins from an animal and covered them with clothes. Okay, so we don't know exactly how this happened. It seems to me that Adam would have watched God kill an animal for the first time. I know that he's God. He doesn't need a buck knife with a gut hook to make it happen. He could have zappoed and had animal skins. It seems to me it would have missed the point of the moment where Adam, who had named the animals, Adam, who had enjoyed the pristine beauty of all of God's creation, watches as God the Father takes the killing knife and kills an innocent animal and skins it out to make a covering for him. And he realizes this is not the way it's supposed to be. I want you to hold on to that moment where Adam must have been incredulous as he watched something die for him. I don't know if you can remember the first time you ever remember watching something die. Was it a mouse or a wasp? My earliest memory is of my father shooting a steer in the barnyard at my grandfather's in Wisconsin. Big old 1,200-pound Angus steer with his head in a bucket of feed, thinking all is well, and my father shot, and I couldn't believe how fast the legs could come out from underneath the steer and my grandfather stepping in to bleed it with the killing knife. I was five years old. Wow. We've been studying the book of Hebrews, and in the book of Hebrews, there's been a lot of talk about animals dying and being killed for sacrifice. There's been a lot of talk about the law of Moses But the writer is trying to convince the recipients that there is a better way and that the new is better than the old. They only know the old. They know the law. They know the Aaronic priesthood. They know the sacrificial system of the killing of animals. But now, even in their temptation to return to the old ways, the writer is calling on them to see Christ who has completed the work. And he is the satisfactory sacrifice before a holy God. The new is better than the old. It occurred to me that in our audiences here of the three services that we have a broad range of Bible knowledge. I think about that often, actually. Some of you know God's word well. You've been studying it all of your lives. Some of you have taught God's word. Others of you, it's new to you. And I thought that it would benefit us before we move into chapter eight of Hebrews next week and we begin. Now, remember in Hebrews, we're in the, we're in the thick of it in Hebrews. He's in a long exposition of detail, and it's a deep study, chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and chapter 10, and he's convincing them in detail of how we have a better way in Christ, and when we move into chapter 8, he is going to spend much of chapter 8 convincing them that the new covenant now is better than the old. And so I thought that today's message, if we just stopped and we asked ourselves a question What about the blood of bulls? What about the blood of goats? Blood of goats. What about the blood of Jesus? How does that relate? And what about living under the law? And how was salvation found in the Old Testament? If the new is better than the old, what was the significance of the old? And so I think by listening careful today, carefully today, and by us doing some study today, it will help us understand better the argument of the writer of Hebrews as we move into chapter 8 next week. So today, a little bit of a break from Hebrews, but in just a minute, we're going to turn there. We're going to ask five questions. We want to answer them effectively, but our outline today is just five questions. I want you to know these questions ahead of time so that you can think with me the progression of what we're doing here. The first question is, okay, were Old Testament saints saved by obeying the law and sacrificing animals? 
Because the writer of Hebrews has been arguing to them that there is a better sacrifice. There is a new covenant versus the old covenant. And it's a better way. Were they saved by that? I'm going to argue that they were not saved by that, which will lead us to the next question then. What is then the purpose of the law and the sacrificing of animals? A good bit of our Bible is given to that. What, what was the purpose of that? If they did not bring salvation, then what did they do? Why did God give the law? Why did God set up a system under the priests of Levi, of the line of Aaron, under Aaron, to be sacrificing animals. Why did so much blood of animals flow in the Old Testament? That's going to lead us then to the obvious question of the day, which is, okay, is there more than one way of salvation in the Bible? Is there an Old Testament plan of salvation? Is there a New Testament plan of salvation? Or is Christ the only way for salvation from our sin? And I'm going to Beg the answer yes on that. Yes, there's only one way, and it is in Christ alone. And if that's the case, then question number four has to be, all right, then how were Old Testament saints saved? If they lived before Christ and the cross, how is it that they could be saved, especially because of the answer of number one and number two, if the blood of bulls and the blood of goats and the keeping of the law did not save and they were living before Christ's ministry On the cross, how is it that they could be saved? We go back that it is in Christ ultimately that they find their salvation. And so then we want to conclude by briefly readdressing then and settling in our minds question number five. Okay, then, if Christ is the only plan of salvation and the only way of salvation, then of what value was the blood of animals for those who were believers in the Old Testament? What good was it all? So let's dig into our Bibles. It's going to be a study. I'll have you hold a couple places because we're going to return there. That'll be Romans chapter 3. But we have our first question. And remember, what we're doing today is we're trying to answer these questions to help clarify some things that are part of the arguments in the book of Hebrews that when we get to Hebrews, it should help us. Now, I want to admit up front that a lot of trees have been killed and a lot of drums of, of ink run through the presses Trees to make the paper and ink, drums of ink to print the books that have been written about this subject today. I didn't say that very smoothly, did I? There's been a lot of thought and a lot of work on this subject today. And admittedly, we are going to do a touch and go. We're just going to touch down on it. But I trust that I can capture the essence of the teaching for you, that it will be helpful to us. Others of you will be... uh, curious to move on and do even deeper study, and that would be a good thing. Number one, question number one, were Old Testament saints saved by obeying the law and sacrificing animals? Were Old Testament saints saved by obeying the law and sacrificing animals? Let's divide that in two, and the first part of that question is, no, obeying the law of Moses cannot bring salvation. Let's go right to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. Um, Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And uh, as you go there, let me just uh, give you the gist of Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, as well as in chapter 3, 10 through 14. Basically what Paul says there, taking a quote out of Galatians 2, 16, by the works of the law, no one will ever be justified. By the works of the law, no one will ever be justified. Now let your eyes go to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, where I hope you've turned in your Bible or your electronic device. For by the works of the law, Romans 3, 20, verse 20a, the first part of the verse, for by works works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. So the answer is no, obeying the law of Moses does not save anyone. Second part of that question, and you can put a marker in Romans 3 because we're going to come back and pick up the second part of verse 20 in just a minute. The second part of this question, the answer to this question is, letter B, no, the blood of animals cannot take away sin. The blood of animals cannot take away the sins of human beings. And this is where we have the privilege of 
Turning to Hebrews once again this Sunday morning and to Hebrews chapter 7 and let our eyes go there to uh, touch down on part of the concept that I'm talking about here about how our author is talking about this matter of the law and the blood of animals and how that's part of an old covenant and how the new covenant is going to surpass that. And so look what he says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 11, where we were the last couple of weeks, he says, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? Remember, he's been arguing from the order of Melchizedek that we have a greater priest than the priests of Aaron. And he's saying there would be no need for this new priest that he's talking about, namely Jesus Christ, our high priest. There would be no need for this priest if the old priest could bring about this needed perfection. What perfection is he talking about? He's talking about a perfection that is necessary for a person to stand in the presence of a holy God. You can't just go waltzing in there. He demands perfection. He can't look on anything that's not perfect because he's a holy God. And so these priests of old could not under the law and the blood flowing and the bloodletting of animals provide that kind of perfection. And so there needed to be a new priest and a new system. Furthermore, let your eyes go to chapter 10. I was thinking about this. We haven't been there yet, but uh, I was thinking about how... um, One of my regrets is that I did not study well when I was a younger man. And when I was in my early years of Bible college, I chased soccer balls and Janet and things like that. And I, so I've had to struggle and I regret that. But I want to tell you the good news in this verse is you don't need to know Greek. You don't need to know Greek to understand these words. Look at Hebrews 10.4. Hebrews 10.4. For it is impossible. Got that? I got that. For it is impossible. The English is working here. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats. All right, I got that too. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. There it is. You don't need to dig deeper. It's right there in plain English. So clearly the answer is no, the blood of animals cannot take away sins. So that leads us to our second question, which if, if the law and the blood of animals cannot save, then what was the purpose of the law? And what was the purpose of sacrificing animals under the law and under the Aaronic priesthood? Let's divide this in part as well. And let's deal with the law first. First of all, I want you to see if you'll turn to Leviticus chapter 19, Leviticus 19, and we're doing Bible study this morning. So if that wearies you to turn in your Bible, just, um, uh, uh, take it easy and listen closely But the first thing we want to see is that the law was to demonstrate the holiness of God. Why did God give the law? To demonstrate and display his holiness. Let me show you what I mean by that. We have a sampling here. Again, this is not an exhaustive study. This is a touch-and-go study, and it's to provide us with a helpful orientation for when we go back to Hebrews to have a deeper understanding of the tension between the old and the new. In Leviticus chapter 19, in verses uh, 1 through 4, look what he says. Now, by the way, Leviticus, the word Leviticus, the book Leviticus, means of the Levites. So it's all the information for the Levites, remember? That's the great-grandfather of Aaron. This is the line of priests, the ones who did not inherit land, the ones who were receiving a tithe of the meat so that they could live. And the vegetables from the offerings and the grain offerings, they tied that. That's how they lived because they served as the representatives of the people before God as priests. So this is of the Levites. The book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews, by the way, go together. It would really be valuable to do a study of the Old Testament book of Leviticus in a class and then do a class on Hebrews because they are commentaries on each other and they fit together. But look what it says, and this is a repeated phrase in the book of Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses. That phrase is like 20 times in Leviticus. And the Lord spoke to Moses. And the Lord spoke to Moses. I'm telling you, this is what I want you to know. Now, here's an example. Okay, this is a sampling. 
And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Now, now watch what happens. See, you shall be holy for I, the Lord, your God am holy. Every one of you, verse three, every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or to make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. And so on it goes. What's he doing? He says, in my character, God says, I am absolutely holy. And I want you to reflect that character in a holy life. And immediately what he does is he gives them laws to obey. The law was given to express the holiness of God. That God is a God of standards, that God cannot look at sin. Secondly, I want you to see, uh, by turning now from Leviticus 19, back another chapter, another book to Exodus 19, I want you to see that the law was also given not only to demonstrate the holiness of God, but it was given to set apart Israel from all other nations. Part of the function of the law, and by the way, I'm giving you three functions of the law as to why God would give it to us. And there are at least eight or nine or 10 or 11 reasons why God gave it. In Exodus chapter 19, this is when Moses is ready to go up and receive the 10 commandments at Sinai. And let's just jump into the middle of a sentence in Exodus 19 verse three. While Moses, Israel encamped, End of verse 2, while Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings. That's beautiful, isn't it? I bore you on eagles' wings and I brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now God says to Moses, I have a special plan for Israel and you are gonna be my people and you are gonna be a kingdom of priests you are going to be separated from the rest of the world. And immediately he gives them law. The law was designed to separate God's people from the rest of the world. He didn't give the law to the Canaanites. He gave the law to the Israelites. And by them having the responsibility, even a burden of the law, they were a distinct people driven by the holy character of God but then defining themselves as separate from the rest of the world because of their commitment to the law. Ultimately then, and now if you marked Romans chapter three, we flip way back to the New Testament and we go to Romans three and we finish verse 20. Romans 3.20, once again, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law, comes knowledge of sin. A third reason for the giving of the law is to expose the sin in the human heart. The sinfulness of the human heart is exposed by the giving of the law. Do you remember? It's the third week in a row I'm talking about. I should have brought it back up here. My six foot level and I held it up for plumb. All right. And I had a straight walking stick that when I held it against the plumb level, I realized that my straight walking stick wasn't so straight. What did the level representing the law do? It exposed the crookedness of the stick. That's what the law does. It exposes the sinfulness of our hearts. All right? It shows us where we're crooked. Which leads us to our bonus question of the morning. And if you want to stay longer, we can talk about it. Let me comment just briefly on it. Uh, if you were standing in the foyer earlier, you know that we're rushing towards 325 here, or 1225. 325 would be right. Um, I'll do better than that. This finishes up fairly quickly. But if, you're, if you get your brain engaged here, don't you want to ask the question now that if the law exposes my sin, what about people who never had the law? 
What about people who stand before God one day and he never gave them law? They lived in places where they never heard of Moses. They never heard of the Mosaic law. They didn't know that God was holy. How are they to be judged if they don't know about the law? How do you do that? The answer is in Romans chapter 2, and we won't go there, but let me just tell you quickly. See, there's another law, Paul argues, in Romans chapter 2. There is a law that is written on our hearts, and it's the law of conscience. Okay, this is a general revelation. All people everywhere are given a conscience because we're created by God. And God, when he created human beings, it's one of the things that makes us created in his image and makes us distinct from animals is that we have a conscience. And so no matter what tribe you're from, no matter which people group you're from, no matter how much revelation you've had exposed to you, no matter how much revelation of God's truth you've been blessed to receive, whether it's a little or a lot, you have in natural revelation, we call this, a conscience. And so it works like this. If you kill somebody, your conscience speaks to you and you know you aren't supposed to kill them, whether you live in the Amazonian jungle or whether you live up on the, above the Arctic Circle. You lie, you cheat, you sneak, you see the hurt and the pain that it brings in the eyes of the other person and your conscience smites you. You're unfaithful to your wife and you recognize the hurt that you've caused and all of a sudden your conscience convicts you. And so that person who never had the word of God, who never had the law, will stand one day before a holy and a just God, and he will be condemned according to the violation of his own conscience, because this is true. Listen closely to me. None of us ever, who've ever lived, live up to the good that we know we're supposed to do. No person anywhere ever did what they knew they were supposed to do. And you know it, and you know it from conscience, and that, Paul argues in Romans 2, is enough to condemn you to hell. That you violated the truths that God has embedded in you. Well, that's bonus question and answer, and it's really interesting stuff, but we're going to move on to part B of question number two. What was the purpose of the law and the sacrificing of animals? Well, the purpose of the law, letter A, was to demonstrate the holiness of God, to set apart Israel from all other nations, and number three, to expose the sin of the human heart. Letter B, then, we want to ask the question, okay, then what's with all this bloodletting? What's with all the killing of these animals? The blood of the animal sacrifices was, number one, and we're in Leviticus, back in Leviticus chapter 5 this time, back to Leviticus, it was to demonstrate that sin brings death. I want you to see this. This is really interesting. Back in Leviticus chapter 5, and notice what God says here. We're going to see that the killing of these animals is a reminder that sin brings death. Leviticus chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. I'm going to read a few verses here, verses 1 through 6. If anyone sins in that he hears a public uh, adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. In other words, he has evidence to bring forth, and he withholds evidence. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, verse 2, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal or a carcass of an unclean livestock or a carcass of, an, of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him and he has become unclean and he realizes his guilt, okay? So something happened and he touched something that by the law of Moses he wasn't supposed to touch because of the purity standard, and now he's unclean and he realizes that he's unclean. Or, verse 3, if he touches human uncleanness of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, excrement or some kind of seepage with which one becomes unclean, and it is hidden from him. He didn't realize it at first. When he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt, or, verse 4, if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and he realizes his guilt in any of these things, okay, you got the idea? We got this sampling list. We're just using a sampling here. And he's got this list of things, and he realizes... Man, I've sinned against God. I've broken one of his rules. Here's what he's supposed to do, verse 5. When he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, 
verse 6, he shall bring to the Lord as his compensation for the sin that he has committed a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. The first thing we see here is that the blood of animal sacrifices is, is to demonstrate that sin brings death. How does this work? All right, so this guy sins. He realizes that he sinned. And what he has to do, he has to go home and he goes out back behind the barn where his sheep are in the pasture and he calls. And he's got some feed and he rattles it in the can, whatever you feed lambs that are in a field. And they come running. And it sticks its head in his, licks his hands and eats the grain and he grabs it by the scruff of its hair And he has picked out one that has no blemish. It's never been caught in a fence. It is a cooperative lamb. It is a beautiful lamb. And he goes out to his lamb corral. And there he grabs that lamb. And the thing's flailing. And he brings it. And he takes it. And he puts it on the bench. And he gets the killing knife. and And a beautiful, pure lamb that was out in the pasture behind the barn that didn't know anything about his sin, didn't know anything about his uncleanness, didn't know anything about his guilt, that lamb now has blood soaked into its hair and he takes the killing knife to it and the blood of that lamb dies so that the priest can make an atonement, a covering of that blood for his sin, lesson number one about the animal sacrifice, that sin always results in death. Second lesson is taken from the same passage and the same reality, not only to demonstrate that sin brings death, but the blood of an animal sacrifice was to convict people of the seriousness of their sin. Oh, I didn't even know I bumped into that guy. I didn't even know I had a little bit of that on my hands. I didn't even know No, go get the lamb. Get that nice little lamb that is a beautiful one that is perfect. You don't get any scruffy ones. You don't get ones that have been scarred up in fence wire. You don't get ones that have a broken leg or that have been bit by a dog. You get that perfect lamb that would bring the most price at the market and the one that your kids love the most. And you get it and you recognize that sin is really serious because they got to kill another lamb. And think about what this does to your boys and girls. I was five years old when I watched my father shoot a steer in the barnyard for butchering. So your boys and girls are little and two and three and they're following you and you're going out behind the barn and they say, Papa, what are you doing? Papa has to get a lamb. Why? Because Papa has sinned. Well, that lamb, that's a, that's, that lamb is fuzzy. That's fuzzy, our favorite lamb. Yes, fuzzy's got to go. Well, what did fuzzy do? Fuzzy didn't do anything. I did it. But sin is so serious that blood has to flow. You see what's happening here? And so thirdly, we see that it is to provide atonement for sin from this same passage. What does that mean? That's the idea of a covering, uh, something that covers up the sin so that it is done away with in the eyes of a holy God, in a sense. And so God allows the death of an animal and the shedding of the blood of an animal to actually atone to cover that sin. We'll illustrate this further later. Notice what it says there in Hebrews chapter 9, without turning there, I put it in here. Indeed, Hebrews 9, 22, we haven't gotten to this point yet, but that's why we're doing this sermon so we understand these things when we get there. Indeed, under the law, almost everything... And I said, see Leviticus 18, 19, and 20, because listen, he says, almost everything is purified with blood. Under the law, almost everything is purified. No, but there's a chapter with a running list of heinous sin for which there was no animal sacrifice by which you could have atonement or receive atonement. That's what I was talking about last week when I talked about cussing your father and your mother or committing fornication or adultery. We got 50 acres here. And if we were under the old covenant and not the new covenant, there's no sacrifice for those sins. And so you would be taken out and stoned to death. So we would have a, we got 50 acres here with a lot of rock on it. We would have a lot of rock piles back there. You say, what about that rock pile? That's your, that's old pastor. He, he, he didn't quite make it. Why not? Because there was no blood that could cover that sin. 
You see? And so what he says in Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the, not he, I left the T off of the, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So you see what God is implementing here, which ultimately leads us to number four, our fourth reason, and that is to foreshadow the work of Christ on the cross. Remember in John's gospel in chapter one and verse 29, what did John the Baptist say about Jesus when he came walking up early in the beginning of his public ministry? Behold, the lamb of God who does what? Who takes away the sin of the world. Where did he get that imagery? That imagery is based on the blood sacrifice of animals. So there's four reasons among others as to why God implemented. So we're asking first question, can Old Testament saints be saved by obeying the law and sacrificing animals? No, they cannot. So then what was the purpose of the law and sacrificing of animals? Well, the law was to demonstrate his holiness, to set apart Israel from all other nations, and to expose the sinfulness of our human hearts. What was the purpose of the blood? to demonstrate that sin brings death, to convict people about the seriousness of their sin, to provide atonement for sin, to provide atonement for sin, and to foreshadow the work of Christ on the cross as a picture of substitution, the lamb who substitutes in for the sin of the world, the lamb from out behind the barn who substitutes in for my uncleanness. Blood flowed and God covered my sin. But this leads to another question then. Okay, let's answer this question once and for all. Number three, is Christ the only way of salvation from sin? And the answer is yes, the Bible is clear. The only forgiveness of sin that we have in the presence of a holy God is based on the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross for all people of all time. John fourteen six says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes unto the Father but by me. Acts 4.12, there's no other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5, for this is, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You say, well, maybe that's only for the New Testament, the New Covenant. No, I think that that is a, that is, when you study God's word, you will recognize that that is the standard by which The only standard by which a person can stand before a holy God is that their sin has been credited over, imputed over to Christ, and Christ's righteousness has been credited to our account, imputed to us, and then God can look at us and accept us into his presence. That's the only plan. There are not multiple plans of salvation. There is not an Old Testament plan and a New Testament plan. So then, how in the world were Old Testament believers saved if Christ had not yet lived, died, and risen from the dead? What about Adam? What about Abel? What about Enoch? What about Job? What about Abraham? What about Moses? What about David? What about Jeremiah? How were they saved? Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. Well, the first thing you need to understand about these guys is that they had, at different times, limited information. Not everybody has had the same amount of revelation from God through the ages. Have you ever thought about that? In other words, don't you think that Noah probably didn't understand justification at the level that the Apostle Paul understood it? Now, we don't know everything that Noah knew because God talked directly to him. Noah had a level of revelation and he knew who God was and he believed God and he had faith in God. And Hebrews 11 is going to tell us it was counted unto him for righteousness. But as through the ages, as God revealed himself further, we recognize that they had limited information. So we really don't know what everyone understood at all different times through the Old Testament. I mean, think about it. There were many people who lived a long time before the law of Moses. They were outside of the law. But we do know, letter B, that they believed by faith. That is one of the themes that Paul especially argues in Romans, that salvation is always by faith. And it was by faith in what God said. Hebrews 11, when we get there, will further illustrate this. We do know that they had at least glimpses of a coming Messiah. They must have understood at some level through God's revelation 
I mean, how did you ever ask yourself when Cain and Abel offered sacrifices, how did they know they were supposed to offer sacrifices and why were they offering sacrifices? Because they knew they fell short of the glory of God. They knew that they were sinners. God had told Adam what to do. And he taught his boys. And his boy Cain knew exactly what to do. He just refused to do it. He was a stubborn, thick-headed, thick-necked boy. Cost him his life eventually. Made him a murderer. God ain't going to tell me what to do. Anybody here like that this morning? God says, if you, Cain, if you would just do, if you would just do what is right, won't you be accepted? I ain't doing that. And so they knew that they needed some kind of sacrifice. And this knowledge evidently in layers becomes in, increasingly known. But even way back, the oldest book of the Bible, one of the oldest characters of the Bible, we believe probably pre-Abraham is Job. And Job said, I know that my Redeemer lives and that one day I shall stand before him. He had a need for a redeemer, and he understood it at some level. You see, they, they had at least glimpses of a coming Messiah and their need for a sacrifice to take care of their sin before a holy God. David in Psalm 30 and in many messianic psalms, some of them you don't even recognize when you read that they're about that. And in the New Testament, Peter and others, when they're preaching, say, just like David said... And they quote the Psalms over and over. But he said, oh, Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You have saved me from hell. The Lord has saved me from hell. Isaiah, I mean, he is so, it's the clearest of all the Old Testament prophecies about our Lord Jesus, isn't it? Isaiah 53, it's the gospel in the Old Testament. All we like sheep have gone astray. And the Lord has done what? The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the substitutionary death of Christ that's being prophesied and talked about. They had glimpses of it. They had some level of understanding of it. Peter says in 1 Peter that the prophets looked into this and longed to look into it. And ultimately, if you read the passage, it was about Christ to them way back then. In Luke 24, when our Lord was on the road to Emmaus, what did he do when he still had his... his, um, identity shrouded before these two men on the road to Emmaus on the night of the resurrection. They didn't know they were walking with the resurrected Christ. And what does he do? It says he started with the law and the prophet. He walks them through the whole Old Testament, explaining to them how the Messiah must come. So I don't know what they knew, but they knew something. And they knew that they had to react to a holy God. And they believed God as God revealed truth to them in whatever age they lived. And God gave them the amount of truth. They accepted it. Always salvation by faith. Always a gift of God to give them that information. The grace, God through grace told them the truth and they accepted it by faith because they knew that they needed a sacrifice. They all knew that at some level. And so how do we say this? The illustration, by the way, is Abraham, and we're not going to go there. That's a whole message. Someday we'll do Romans, I think, if I live long enough. In Romans chapter 4, what is Paul arguing? That Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. We'll have to look into that further another day. Their faith was what was counted to them for righteousness, So letter E, they were saved on credit. Here's how you think about it. They were saved on credit. And we're going to finish quickly. Stay with me. They were saved on credit. What does that mean? It means that God, in his understanding, in the heart of the the sinner, um, when he, he, uh, read the... Now, just forget that. Letter E, they were saved on credit. God looked forward to the cross on their behalf. Today, he looks backward to the cross of Christ for the salvation of all who believe. Charles Ryrie, an instructor, theology instructor at Dallas for many years, now with the Lord, wrote this. The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ, circle death of Christ. The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. 
Okay? So when God saw a sinner in the Old Testament make an animal sacrifice and the priest made atonement for him, God held that in his mind, and ultimately that animal blood didn't wipe it clean, but ultimately that sin was deposited at the cross, and the blood of Christ is what counted for their righteousness ultimately. I'll explain that more in just a minute. The basis of salvation in every age is the death of Christ. The requirement for salvation in every age is faith. You can't work for salvation. You can't jump through hoops. You only accept salvation by faith. The object of faith in every age is God himself. You have to have faith in God. Hebrews 11 is going to talk about this. He who comes to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's faith. And ultimately, though, you need to understand that the content, what they understood and the extent of their faith, that changed during various dispensations. I believe that's a true statement. So quickly, question number five then. Of what value then was the blood of animals for those who were believers in the Old Testament? Just look at the notes. Here's what I wrote. God saw the heart of the sinner as he sacrificed the blood of an innocent animal. The sinner sacrificed the blood of an innocent animal and God counted it as a covering to sin. Remember in Leviticus 5 that the priest could take the blood of that female sheep and that blood made atonement but that was a temporary deal that God made, okay? But that then would be wiped away fully in the future by the blood of Christ at the cross. See Roman numeral two, letter B, number three. Let me give you an illustration from Jim Shoopy. We were talking about this Wednesday morning on the racquetball court, and he said, I have an illustration you should use. He said, it's not original with me. I don't know where I got it. So you're sitting down, in a beautiful dining room, beautiful china table set with a beautiful cloth tablecloth and it's pure white tablecloth. It's fabric. And somewhere during the meal, you're aware that there's more people to come and you're trying to keep it clean and they're going to seat people there. Maybe it's a restaurant setting and they're going to seat more guests. And somewhere during the meal, you knock over your shrimp, red shrimp cocktail sauce and it spills a big blotch on the white tablecloth. And you're upset about it and you dabble it and you try to clean it up and you get, and the waiter comes and he takes the plate away and he cleans it up. And then he takes and he puts a napkin, a white cloth napkin folded up right over the spot. And he sets a new tape, a new setting and someone else can sit there and they really don't know that there's a spot on the tablecloth. It's covered up. But later that tablecloth will be later, will be taken to laundry and it will be cleaned. See, when that's what God did with the blood of animals. He put a napkin over the stain. But it was held there. It was still there, but it was covered up. And that satisfied God for that time until our Lord Jesus could go to the cross. And then there he could cleanse every sin. And that's where it was laundered at the cross, looking forward. For us, when we sin, we look back. All right? Hopefully that helps you a little bit. So why is salvation only by faith? Why isn't it for love or for good works or for niceness? Why doesn't God honor niceness for salvation? I'm really a nice guy. I really, I really love people. But no, there's only one prerequisite for faith in all the Bible and for salvation in all the Bible, and it's faith. So why is salvation only by God's grace through faith alone? Number one, faith shows God that the attitude of our hearts is the exact opposite of depending upon ourselves. Faith means I I don't have any answers and I'm totally dependent on God. That's what you see in the Old Testament. That's what you see in the New Testament. They believed God. No works lest anyone could boast. Number two, faith in Christ alone offers genuine hope to unbelievers who know they could never make themselves righteous. There's no works here. And, and you've done spilled the ink bottle on the tablecloth. You've spilled the red shrimp sauce on the table and you can't get it out and you know it and you know you can't stand before a holy God. But what does salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone bring? It offers genuine hope that any unbeliever who knows that they're a sinner and knows they can't clean up their own act that God can make them righteous. 
It's his system. It's his work. It's not our work. Number three, justification by grace through faith in Christ alone gives us confidence that God will never make us pay the penalty for sins that have been forgiven on Christ's merits and not our own. Isn't that good? It's by grace alone, through faith alone. And you know why the new is better than the old? Because we know with clarity that it is the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ that through that in his blood that God credits to us the righteousness of Christ and which our sin is imputed to him and washed away forever. Praise God, huh? Praise God. I trust that this fast run through this um, interesting subject will help us as we open to Hebrews chapter 8. I want to ask you a question before we stand and close in prayer. Are you trusting in God for your salvation by grace, that means it's his grace. It's a free gift that he gives. He offers the forgiveness of sin. The wages of our sin is death. We've already illustrated that. I, I have thought in preparation, it would really probably be good if we had to kill a lamb once in a while in our backyard because we kind of live like sin doesn't really matter. And in Israel of old, you were, re- you were, you were aware that sin had a consequence. But by grace, God's gift... By faith, we receive his finished work at the cross. This is something that only you can do to accept salvation in Christ through the gift of God. I encourage you to examine your heart today. Are you a born-again Christian because of your faith in Jesus Christ alone? Let's stand in closing prayer. So, Father, you know our hearts, you know our minds. And um, before we flip a switch and we head off to lunch here. Would you please, Lord, just convict us where we need convicted. Thank you for the new covenant. Thank you for the revelation that you've given us. We are privileged to hold our Bibles in our hands today and to know so much. And it's a sufficient word. It's a complete word. And thank you for our great salvation in Christ. Thank you that the new is better than the old. I pray, Lord, that you would convict our hearts where we need convicted and that our faith and trust would be in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation. We commit ourselves to you for another week. We ask for comfort for those who will be at funerals tomorrow and others will be at hospitals receiving bad news. There will be many difficulties this week. Help us to rest in your care and your keeping. We will count on your promises to sustain us for another week should you tarry. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.